Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, Magic and Alchemy is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kate Ballou, and my co-host, Kristen Lissenby. Hello, and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kristen Lizenby. And I'm Kate Ballou. How's your week going, Kate? What's new? Oh my gosh, I'm so excited because Kristen and I get to meet for the first time. Listeners, (laughs) I've been trying to just hold in my excitement and like not talk about it, Um, but you have your ticket. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm picking you up in Flushing on the 7th, and we're heading north to have a witchy sleepover in Terrytown with the beloved Caitlin Barone. Um, and this episode will air two days after we're together. And also, Astrological Samhain is on the 7th, so all of this to say, I'm I'm doing great. <laughs> yes, tears of great joy will be shed. Uh But yeah, like all my traveling lately, this trip was totally spur of the moment. And as you know, Kate, I almost booked tickets that would have landed me in New York over Samhain, October 31st Samhain, but it didn't work out. The universe had other plans. And now I know it's because I was meant to meet you two on Astrological Samhain. Mm. My mom is also flying in from California, who I haven't seen since I went home to visit this past spring. So this is going to be such a magical trip. And I'm just so, so excited. Yay, mom. Oh my gosh, it's just going to be so much fun. (laughs) But to save me from just, you know, bursting into tears, what is our listener question this week? Yeah, good call. Let's pivot before the (laughs) tears arrive. Uh, Yeah, one of our listeners asked, what kind of self-care rituals would you recommend for someone with seasonal depression? This is a really beautiful question because I myself am a seasonally depressed witch and it's something I've really struggled with living in places with really heavy winters, but I cannot, cannot recommend enough just, you know, getting a good therapist if you're able to, like my work with my therapist over the last handful of years has given me such a important toolbox to draw from. And, you know, as a non-licensed, non-medical practitioner, that's exactly my advice is to build a toolbox, um, building a toolbox as a ritual. I keep a list of things in my phone that make me happy, hot showers, hugging my dog, playlists, going for even just a five-minute walk, stand-up comedy on Netflix, whatever it is. Then when you're feeling that way, your brain doesn't have to like work extra hard to remember what brings you joy. And I also have noticed for myself when I allow myself to feel more of my feelings, their intensity lessens. So, you know, invite them to tea and turn inward in the winter. And rituals of inner care are great support for this work. So, you know, journaling, napping, stretching. Kristen, what do you think? 
Yeah, as always, I love these suggestions. I think, like you said, laughter is medicine and movement is medicine. A good fiction book that transports us to another world can be medicine as well. I also think that if it's available to us, being part of a circle or a community has been really supportive to me. I'm sure that's partially because I live on an island and I'm rather isolated, but whenever I take part in virtual gatherings, be they moon circles, uh, lectures about the fixed stars, live storytelling communities, book clubs, or Kate's amazing writing school, the Bardot. Mm. Being part of a creative circle has really helped to lift my spirits on so many occasions. It's obviously not a cure for anything, but I do think being of service and being present within a community of magical humans can feel really warm and really inspiring. And it also just feels comforting to know that we're not alone when we experience seasonal highs and lows. Yes, to all of this, like community is is so, so important. And and thanks for saying that. Um, What are we diving into today? Today, we are talking about something that we've wanted to talk about since I think season one, Mm -hmm. and that is the crossroads of psychedelic and sacred plants and witchcraft. Psychedelics are what led me back to witchcraft. After some difficult teenage years, an eating disorder, depression, and anxiety, I had fallen out of enchantment with the world, forgotten my power, and forgotten about magic. But, luckily, the mushrooms found me and helped me to remember. Psychedelics led me back to awe, introduced me to the folks at Evolver and Reality Sandwich, and encouraged my move to New York City, where the world of witches, magic, herbalism, poetry, and the psychedelic were waiting for me. I'm so grateful to these plant beans. But the intersection of these worlds, the psychedelic and witchcraft, are inextricably linked. There has always been something about being a witch that felt a little bit psychedelic. We all know the stereotypical imagery, witches flying on a broom, making potions, gathering in covens with like-minded folk, and making magic. But once you get past that and think about the muck and boil, the crackle and pop of witchcraft, that's where the gristle of the thing is. Being a witch means embracing shadow, what is dark, varied, and liminal, and the psychedelic is the same way. What has often been on the fringe of society, both the psychedelic and the occult are seeing new ascent to the mainstream. The history of hallucinogenic and potent or poisonous plants is rich, winding, and divergent, much like mythology. It's sacred, land-based, tended to and stewarded by indigenous peoples, and much of what we know about poisonous plants and witchcraft have been handed down over the centuries, and much wisdom has been lost in the violence enacted against the keepers of this knowledge. So let's just dive into that liminal space together. There are many poisonous or potent plants that have been ritually used across the planet. For example, the plants henbane, belladonna, and mandrake have also been connected to witchcraft as hallucinogens for centuries. We've spoken about Datura on this podcast before, some believing that the Delphic oracles would eat the crushed seeds of this beautiful trumpet plant before speaking prophecy. 
In Plants of the Gods, Richard Evan Schultz, Albert Hoffman, and Christian Ratch wrote, These plants enable witches to perform feats of occult wonder and prophecy, to hex through hallucinogenic communication with the supernatural, and transport themselves to far-off places. And not only for journeying work, the witch and the psychedelic are healing-focused, and before these plants were feared, they were worked with carefully as medicine. Many of these sacred and potent plants that witches, wise women, and healers worked with exist in our pharmaceuticals today. For example, foxglove is found in digoxin, a heart medication. Psychedelic witches know that the difference between a medicine and a poison with any plants or substance is the dose. When I say psychedelic, I'm weaving in plant magic, sacred plants, and hallucinogenic plants. Psychedelic resists a single definition, much like the witch. But when I think about the crossroads and psychedelics, I have to begin with the queen, goddess, witch of the crossroads herself, Hecate. We've spoken about Hecate and her garden on this podcast before, but for new listeners, she is the Greek goddess and considered by some to be the first witch, presiding over magic, spells, herbal knowledge, and the crossroads, the symbolic representation of decision-making and fate. She's often visually depicted as the deity archetype of the triple goddess in the domain of the moon, earth, and childbirth. Sometimes, in these depictions, she is shown holding a torch in search of Persephone, who, in Greek mythology, disappears into the underworld. She can also be found in the imagery of her garden with the serpents. The priestesses of Hecate were called the Thessalian witches, famous for sorcery and astrology. The poetic language of drawing down the moon has even been tied by some scholars to psychedelic sentiments, attributing this magic of moon pulling to working with psychedelic mushrooms. In the words of the Roman poet Ovid, quoted in this beloved copy of Witchcraft Medicine, a book I often reference by Claudia Muller-Abeline, Christian Ratch, and Wolf Dieter Storl, when someone says that the evil green stuff on the Thessalia soil and the arts of magic might be able to help, then he should try it. That is the ancient way of witchcraft. Some speculate that this quote references psychedelic shrooms or plant medicine that the Thessalian witches worked with. It's said that it was Hecate's duty to find and test all available plant spirits, which meant she discovered many different species, including the narcotic aconite flower, which would later turn up in some flying ointments. Aconite is nicknamed monk's hood, wolf bane, and the devil's helmet. Hecate is also credited with finding mandrake while in the form of a hound, which, according to one source, later gave rise to the practice of using dogs to pull mandrake from the earth. There's also a 16th century manuscript that I will not try to pronounce, but I will add it in our show notes, that depicts Hecate holding a burning laurel leaf torch in one hand and an opium stalk in another. More on opium and poppy in a bit, but the combination of Hecate's relationship to the moon, torch, psychedelic plants like aconite, opium, and mandrake, hounds, and also keys, which we've mentioned before on previous episodes, all backs up what we already know, that Hecate has a strong relationship with the underworld and can provide the tools needed to visit this realm. The gift of plant magic was passed down to her daughters, Medea and Circe. 
Most famously, Circe was known to turn her enemies, mainly men, into animals. But if we dig a little deeper into her story, Circe was originally credited with brewing love filters, which was a combination of psychedelic and symbolic ingredients mixed with water or wine. Like all ancient recipes, the ingredients are highly debated, but as Mandrake is referred to as Circe's plant, in my eyes, it's a top contender. It suggested that because Circe's love potions were so powerful, they rendered the drinkers useless, making them solely focused on sex and following their lustful desires. This meant that, in the end, they were no wiser than beasts. I thought this was such an interesting theory because we often hear of Circe turning men to pigs thanks to Homer's Odyssey, but perhaps, like many things in literature, this transformation was more symbolic than literal. I love that part in the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. Cody just got to it, and I'm like, good for her. Every time, good for her. (laughs) Every time. (laughs) But you talked a little bit about flying ointments, and this relates to the sacred festival of Samhain and psychedelic plants. This is an especially important day to those who practice witchcraft. Described as the witch's Halloween, a day to honor the dead, when the veil between this world and the next is the thinnest, Samhain was celebrated with huge bonfires burning to frighten spirits while warming the souls of those departed. Witch's salve was made during Samhain and other Sabbath days, witch's gathering days with psychedelic plants like hemlock, monkshood, and henbane. Traditionally, witches would simmer these herbs in goose fat to make the salve. Legend has it that salve would then be taken through the membranes of the skin, where the skin is the thinnest, either vaginally or under the arms. We discussed this a little bit during the broom episode we did last Samhain season. Some think that this is where the imagery of witches on broomsticks comes from, as the witches would apply their salve to the broomstick before taking it on a ride. As a tool, the broom is seen to balance both masculine and female energies, which explains why it was often used symbolically. But the more likely connection has to do with the fact that users of witches' brew were in fact very practical, using their ointment-laden broomsticks to get high, basically to fly. These salves were made for journeying and psychedelic experiences. In their minds, they would disappear across the night to go explore the mysteries that exist in the beyond. Sometimes these women are depicted riding on the back of an animal familiar, an animal bonded to a witch through her practice, maybe a duck, goat, pig, wolf, or cat. Indeed, these images of witches on brooms and animals are intertwined throughout history, Both elements, animal transformation and soul travel, are well known to cultural anthropologists. They belong to the repertoire of shamanic techniques of ecstasy. And this is a quote from witchcraft medicine that I mentioned earlier. Poisonous herbs can sever the soul from the body. Thus, it is able to fly into the astral world beyond the world of exterior appearances. While the body remains in a death-like posture, the soul can slip into animals and move through the forest. The shamanic art is, at best, the ability of the soul to find its way back to the body. 
Just to expand on astral traveling a little bit, uh, I know astral traveling and lucid dreaming are not the same, but in my eyes, they're friends. And I came across a lot of information about people leaning into the dream world and the lucid dream world specifically with the help of sacred plant elixirs. One story said that people seeking guidance or healing from the Egyptian goddess Isis could meet her in the dream world with a potion of coriander and opium. People would drink the elixir, fall into a deep sleep, many times a lucid sleep state, where Isis awaited. When she appeared standing over them, people could make the requests, anything from divining with the dead to curing a would-be fatal affliction. And this idea of visiting the land of the gods or the gods visiting the land of mortals through psychedelic-inspired sleep states was a pretty common practice from what I understand. I found similar mentions of the healing god Asclepius using soothing potions to treat patients in this way, and even a story of Saint Nick who, while at a party with other saints, drank from a golden jug. After drinking this potion, Saint Nick falls into a deep sleep, and when Saint John wakes him up, assuming that he's intoxicated, Saint Nick tells the other partygoers he was not sleeping. He was astral projecting to the Aegean Sea, where there was a great storm, and he was helping to guide the ships. That's what I tell people when I'm caught sleeping, too. <laughs> Same. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the Amanita muscaria mushroom, a mushroom linked to the shamanic cultures of East Asia and Siberia, especially as we look ahead to the winter solstice next month. These mushrooms have been used ritually as psychedelic medicine in the wintertime for centuries. Amanita muscaria is one of the most visually recognizable species of fungi due to its vivid red caps with white buttons. This iconic mushroom has been popularized through illustrations, folklore, yard ornaments, and gnomes, and is intertwined with Christmas traditions. You'll also recognize it as the emoji on your iPhone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Amanita muscaria is also known as fly agaric due to its practical use as a household fly killer. It's said that placing fly agaric in a dish with milk will attract flies, subsequently killing them, you know, with varying accounts of success. Fly agaric is poisonous because of its muscimol and ibotenic acid content. It's hallucinogenic compounds, but fatal ingestion is rare. Amanita muscaria is frequently depicted in psychedelic art containing mushrooms, but it is not the same magic mushroom people associate with the term and does not contain psilocybin. Nonetheless, when ingested without detoxifying, it can produce a powerful altered state. According to Mary Jane magazine, users report feelings of euphoria and tranquility, an altered sense of hearing and taste, and vivid changes in visual or sensory perception. Amanita muscaria played a role in pre-Christian winter rituals, and it may not be a coincidence that Santa Claus and his ensemble match its memorable color scheme. In Central Asia, while collecting these mushrooms, shamans would wear specific garments while foraging for the mushrooms. These outfits were red with white fur and black boots, much like Santa Claus. After collecting these mushrooms in a Santa Claus-like sack, the shaman would return to the village and enter a special yurt via the smoke hole at the top. <laughs> 
John Rush, an anthropologist and instructor at Sierra College, told Live Science, because snow is usually blocking doors, there was an opening in the roof through which people entered and exited, thus the chimney story. During the winter solstice, the Koryak shamans of Siberia would eat these mushrooms and journey to the Tree of Life, which was represented by a large pine. In Habitat states, the Tree of Life held the answer to all of the village's problems from the previous year. Amanita muscaria is commonly found under conifer and birch trees, with which they have a symbiotic relationship, according to James Arthur, author of Mushrooms and Mankind. In his book, Arthur suggests that this relationship contributes to our present-day Christmas rituals. Why do people bring pine trees into their houses at the winter solstice, placing brightly colored packages under their boughs as gifts to show love for each other, he wrote. Is it because underneath the pine bough is the exact location where one would find this most sacred substance, the Amanita muscaria in the wild? Reindeer are also known to eat and love these fungi and go out of their way to ingest them. According to lore, it is Amanita muscaria that helped them reach the sky and ride among the clouds. Today, many use these mushrooms for decorations as garlands, Christmas cards, and ornaments, and some hang a mushroom on the tree for good luck. In doing my research for this episode, I found an interesting claim on tripsitter.com from a 2022 article titled Psychedelics and Witchcraft, Delirience, Soporifics, and Folklore that said witches were often accused of eating babies, as we see in fairy tales and stories, even Hocus Pocus. (laughs) But instead of humans, witches were eating red cap fly agaric. It said that this mushroom can sometimes resemble human flesh and was sometimes called holy children or holy babies. Mm, which is so interesting. Um, that's what Maria Sabina called the mushrooms. And so mm-hmm. let's talk about her next. We can't talk about mushrooms without mentioning and honoring Maria Sabina. Maria Sabina is a complex and beautiful figure and piece of healing history. She's a curandera, a visionary poet, a healer, and a steward of the mushrooms who she called the Holy Children. You can go onto YouTube and listen to her mushroom chants, which I highly recommend. Um, these chants also inspired the poet Anne Waldman's work and her book, Fast Speaking Woman, a collection of psychedelic and visionary poetry. I'd love to read to you from one of our favorites, Missing Witches, by Amy Torek and Risa Dickens. Listeners, you can check out our interview with them from Ostara. But about Maria Sabina, a missing witch, they wrote, When I try to understand what those years of Maria's life were like, I imagine the vast spores of a species we are only beginning to understand, and how a poet and healer could have found a way through rituals and songs learned and crafted to travel with them, connecting her to the greatest web. 90% of the estimated 3.8 million fungi in the world are unknown to science. She was a word witch whose scope was the great mushroom of language itself. She spoke of the God who emerges from the earth. She had a vision beyond common comprehension. Words for her are a therapeutic instrument and a way to depict visions, but also a self-conscious flesh that remakes and investigates prior tests. 
She's the woman who shepherds the immense. She first glimpsed this immensity as a kid, just hungry, eating the sacred mushrooms and seeing what they showed her about her life in the years to come. And then Maria shepherded these dangerous Dionysian instruments that threatened hierarchy directly into the minds of multitudes of seekers. But what is it that the mushrooms actually do? Is it the same thing that Heriberto Yepes thinks that poetry can do? Breaking boundaries and healing? Freeing us from the narrow constraints of binary? How can a temporary shift in brain function threaten hierarchies in society? And is this what a witch does? End quote. Maria Sabina herself said, I take the little one who springs up out of the earth and I see God. I see him springing up out of the earth. As a psychedelic witch, a sacred plant honoring witch, and a witch who believes in the power of enchantment, presence in history, I have to say, yes. So I would love to turn to LSD, also known as acid for a minute, and its history and crossroads with witchcraft. LSD has been present in rites and rituals pre-chemical conception through its predecessor, ergot. Ergot is a fungus that grows on rye grain, which led to Albert Hoffman's development of LSD. It was used in earlier times, though, by witches and midwives to help ease the pain of labor. Ergot was also used to make methargen, a modern-day medication that is still used during labor and miscarriage, as well as for delayed regeneration of the uterus during birth. I also think that ergot was maybe used in the Eleusinian Mysteries. Is that right, Kristen? Yes, well, maybe. Um, a little a little backstory for any listeners who are new to the mysteries or want a refresher. The Eleusinian Mysteries, also known as the Rites of Demeter, took place in ancient Greece at the Temple of Eleusis for about 2,000 years, from around 1600 BCE to 392 CE. The Lesser Rites took place in March and were sort of a precursor to the Greater Rites in September. Most of the time when people talk about the Eleusinian Mysteries, they're referencing the latter. So the Greater Mysteries lasted for approximately nine days. People who wanted to be initiated into the goddess's mystery cult would partake in a series of rituals and experiences that were and are still highly guarded. Therefore, little is known about them and we're forever trying to piece together the puzzle. However, we do know some things, like that the mystery centered around Persephone's descent and eventual return from the underworld, also Demeter's grief and her role as a grain mother. There are ancient images of Demeter handing wheat to her priestesses and vice versa, and as we've mentioned before, wheat is a symbol of agricultural cycles, the seasons, the union of the sun and earth, but also the transformation of the soul body. If the initiates wanted to see the underworld, they also had to sacrifice a pig, set aside some money for the priest who would mix them a sacred drink called Kaikian, bathe in the Bay of Phaleron, fast on a specific day, I believe it was September 18th if I'm not mistaken, and then march from Athens to Eleusis the following day. Many well-known people and philosophers were initiates, such as Plato and Cicero, and most people who completed the mysteries claimed that they no longer feared death. 
So there was absolutely an emphasis on death, but also rebirth and or the idea that the soul endures. Cicero said that the mysteries taught him, quote, how to live in joy and die with better hopes. And Plutarch, a priest at the Temple of Apollo at Delphi, was also an initiate. He said, quote, We hold it firmly for an undoubted truth that our soul is incorruptible and immortal. Now back to the ergot. Once at Eleusis, the priests would mix the sacred drink that would be passed around and shared with everyone. And while there are many claims about the varying ingredients that make up this drink, most agree that it was a combination of water, barley, and mint, as this is what is stated in the Homeric Hymn to Demeter. It goes without saying that this drink was psychoactive, supposedly due to the ergot-laced barley, and as initiates began to feel its effects, they would congregate in the telesterion, which was like an underground theater, to experience a vision that would eradicate their fears and offer answers. However, some historians claim that there is reason to believe barley was included in this drink not as a psychoactive agent, but as a symbolic gesture to the grain mother. In this theory, it was not ergot, but opium from the poppy flower that guided initiates into the underworld. According to the book, Psychedelic Mystery Traditions, Spirit Plants, Magical Practices, and Ecstatic States by Thomas Hatzis, most scholars agree that the Eleusinian mysteries evolved from the ancient Sumerian rituals, those related to Inanna. Engraved into a vase that is approximately five to 6,000 years old, which means it actually predates the Sumerian Empire, is one of the oldest depictions of Inanna. On this vase, we see the Queen of Heaven wearing a horn atop her head. Alongside her partner, Demuzi, she receives baskets of wheat and poppies from her followers. When considering the famous myth of Inanna's descent into the underworld, this book suggests that the plant of life that Enki, god of wisdom, gave to Inanna to help her rise back up from the underworld was poppy. Similarly, there is a sculpture from the 5th century BCE that shows Demeter, Kor, as a singular entity, rising from the underworld holding serpents, grain, and opium poppies. And if we look even closer throughout history, we'll find depictions of Demeter wearing a headdress made of wheat, barley, and poppy flowers. But then you think, okay, well, if opium really was one of the ingredients in this sacred drink at the Eleusinian Mysteries, why was it never mentioned in the Homeric Hymn to Demeter, which is where the Eleusinian Mysteries were first explained? And why was it never mentioned in the myth of Persephone's descent? Well, there are plenty of people who believe it actually was mentioned, just under the guise of Narcissus. If we remember when Persephone, or I think she was Kor at this time, was abducted by Hades, she was picking flowers in a meadow. As the story goes, it's when she plucks a Narcissus blossom that she lets out a scream and then vanishes underground. Due to some of the descriptions of this, quote, Narcissus flower, some suggest it was actually a poppy that affected Persephone and transported her to the underworld. 
I love all of this so much and I just find it so fascinating. And I also, I, I know I was, we were talking about this a little bit when we, before we were recording Kristen, but I can't help but think about Dorothy and her companions mm-hmm. in the Wizard of Oz, um, falling asleep in that field of poppies just before discovering the Emerald Kingdom. Yes. It's very curious, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But. To get back to the ergot for a minute, uh, I want to mention that this fungus is sometimes called the devil's curse, and it has connections to the Salem witch trials. So, as many of our listeners probably know, around 1692, two Puritan girls, Abigail Williams and Betty Paris, began acting strange. They were speaking in odd tongues, imagining things that weren't there, you know, just overall acting as if they were experiencing another reality. The doctors couldn't find anything wrong with them, which meant that when other people started to exhibit similar symptoms, rumors of witchcraft started to swirl. And then, as we know, it snowballed from there. However, in 1976, Dr. Linda Caperol from the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute first theorized that ergot might have been to blame, not witchcraft. Quote, ergot ingestion usually leads to severe convulsions, delusions, muscle spasms, and more. Severe hallucinations are also a symptom owing to the presence of lysergic acid. The young girls in Salem showed all these symptoms. Further, ergotism would have appeared first in adolescence as their immune system was not completely developed, putting them at high risk of the disease. This fits in with the timeline, with the first examples of strange behavior coming from girls in the town preceding a more general malaise. However, the town doctor was not aware of the existence of the disease named ergotism and instead made a diagnosis based on his religious beliefs. So he concluded that the symptoms shown by the young girls were because they had been targeted by witchcraft. It is possible that the girls themselves, unable to explain their symptoms, believe the same, end quote. This article goes on to say that, according to reports, 1691 had been an incredibly wet and rainy year in Salem, which created conditions that ergot thrives in. When the Salem witch trials came to an end in May 1693, it wasn't because the townsfolk had driven out slash murdered all the witches, but because the community had finally consumed all the ergot contaminated grain. And I think ending on this note is a timely reminder that psychedelic and sacred plants have a long, mostly obscured and complicated history. Their story is still being written, we are still uncovering their past, and how they are understood and used will vary from person to practitioner. But should we choose to incorporate them into our craft, they should be treated with the utmost respect, just like any other element we invite into our magical and spiritual circles. Like you said in the beginning, Kate, the history of hallucinogenic, impotent, or poisonous plants is rich, winding, and divergent, much like mythology and witchcraft. Before we go, I'd love to close us out with this quote about witchcraft medicine and the communion of all things from Wolf Dieter Storl. Witchcraft medicine transcends clinical medicine, which, being bound in the corset of experimental natural science, proceeds only by measuring, documenting, and blindly testing what is tangible, the superficial matter, according to the principle of trial and error. 
Witchcraft medicine recognizes the inner being of the illnesses, the little worm without skin or bones, the worms of hate and envy that wriggle their way into us and suck out our life energy. The healing art understands the magical bullets and destructive memories that bore deeply into our physical and spiritual bodies. In order to heal the wounds caused by such etheric astral entities and negative occult energies, the practitioners of witchcraft medicine call on their allies, the plants, the stones, the animals, the water, the fire, the earth. They also have a deep dimension as spirit beings, angels, divas. You can speak with them. They can respond. Witchcraft medicine understands the vitality of existence and knows about the souls and the spirits of all creation. Thank you so much for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kristen Lisenby and Kate Ballou. You can find us online at Easton Alchemy and at K8Ballou. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at Tamed Wild or on the blog tamedwild.com. Tune into next week's episode where we will begin a special series of storytelling. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mote it be for something better. Until next time.